Good morning, church. Great to see you. Happy Father's Day. Welcome to Union Chapel this morning. If you're joining us online, welcome to you as well. Glad you're with us. This is the day the Lord has made. We're rejoicing in it. Um, Father's Day uh, carries with it some emotion, doesn't it? Some excitement. You know, if you had a good dad growing up, or you've been a good dad relatively, you know, you feel good about that. And so it's a blessing and lots of good memories for you. Uh, that's not been true for all of us, of course. Some of us had absent dads, maybe physically absent or relationally, connectionally absent, withdrawn. And so your recollections aren't as good. Some of us uh, had just had bad dads. And Ted just shared his story about having a dad who didn't do so well early on, finally figured it out later on. No matter where you are in the continuum today, uh, I've got good news for you. God is a redeeming God, and he can take anything that is an attempt to distract or even destroy your life and bring good out of it. He's a redeeming God. And even if your story, your experience with your father or even as a father has not been great, that God will meet you where you are today and find a way to redeem it. I am... Uh, Excited about sharing this simple message today, a dad that makes a difference. And it's as straightforward and as simple as I know how to teach on this subject. And I hope it's a blessing to you and meaningful. We've chosen as our text this morning from the book of Psalms, one of the Psalms, Psalm 78. And I'm going to read the first seven verses here. This is an admonition from our historic fathers of the faith, encouraging us to share the faith, pass the faith to our children. And so I hope it's an encouragement to you. Psalm 78, 1 to 7, our custom is to stand to hear God's word. So thanks for doing that. And it reads, my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commandments." Now may we hear these words and obey them in Jesus' name. You may be seated. Thanks so much. If you have your uh, Union Chapel app, you can find the outline of the, today's message. I hope that you, you'll have that in front of you. It might help you to follow along. I want to just begin with this first point. I'll put it on the screen for you. The undeniable impact of a father. Now my father was a uh, third out of four children with all sisters. He was third in the pecking order with all sisters. My father's mother was a determined person. She was determined to care for and raise her children, and that was a good thing. And it was good because my father's father, my paternal grandfather, was less reliable. Now, you have to remember this was uh, in the South and was just uh, on the heels of the Great Depression, the 1930s, and he was gone a lot under the guise of, I've got to travel to find work for the family. 
So he, for months at a time, would be physically gone. And then when he was physically present, he was emotionally and relationally disconnected from the family. So my dad uh, actually never had modeled for him what an effective dad was, was supposed to do. And, for example, he never, he never described being able to feel his dad's whiskers. He never remembers his dad reading him a bedtime story. Tussled his hair. Wrestled with him on the, on the ground. Play catch in the backyard. Never remembered smelling his dad's work clothes. My dad never heard the words from his own father, son, I love you. Son, I'm proud of you. Son, you've got the right stuff. Now go make something of your life. Never heard that. So my dad was left trying to figure all this out on his own, and it's exponentially more difficult to do that when you don't have a good model of what a good father looks like. And let me just say that he did a pretty good job, my dad, figuring it out. Uh, and by the end of his life, of course, I would describe my dad as very special and very careful. Now, of course, my, <laughs> my, my father had a model son uh, whose exceptionalism allowed him the time he needed to figure out his faith and how to become a careful parent. <laughs> I can't believe it. My dad's in heaven now, so I, he can't get me. And my mother is not likely to hear this, so I, I'm, I think I'm pretty good shape. Here's what we can say for sure. Young and foolish go together. Can I get a witness? <laughs> young, young and foolish, those things go together. Everybody, when they're young, are also foolish. Now, if I were more crass, I'd just say young and stupid. But let's just keep it more urbane. Uh, we'll say young and foolish. Look at Proverbs chapter 19, verse 3. I'll put this on the screen for you. A person's own folly leads to their ruin. A person's own folly leads to their ruin, yet their heart rages against the Lord. Now, who might the, the, uh, the psalmist be talking about here? This is the writer of Proverbs. This is a man with a chip on his shoulder. This is a guy who's angry with the world. He's angry with God. He's gotten a raw deal. He's gotten a bad, bad deal, and he's angry about it. So he carries this chip. So this man, with his attitude and his anger, ruins his life. Now, we see this happen all the time. This happens every day in the world. Uh, folks get hurt. Folks get wounded. They carry those wounds, and it affects all their relationships and, and brings ruination. A young fool becomes a man in ruin. That's what the Bible teaches. So a father's words and a father's actions have a huge impact on their children. And frankly, it's hard to overestimate the words and actions of a father in the lives of his children. It's a, it's a huge deal. It's an undeniable impact that a father has. Now, I, I want to leave that as a foundation. Let's move to the second idea, the second point, which is to talk about what children need from us. Look at Proverbs twenty-two, fifteen. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. We've kind of rehearsed that. But the rod of discipline or instruction will drive it far away. 
Now, let me just say quickly that the same word that's translated discipline, the Hebrew word there, is also equally as many times, about 50% of the time in the Old Testament, translated instruction. So the point here isn't to talk about corporal punishment. That's maybe another teaching time. Uh, I did read a good book from an acquaintance of mine that he wrote many years ago. It was called God, your, God the Rod, and Your Child's Bod, which I thought was a clever title, and he handled the subject pretty well. But we want, uh, the point I want to make simply is that children need to be disciplined. They need to understand what the boundaries are, what the rules are, what the limitations are, what the parameters are. They need that. They need instruction. So the challenge for the Christian father is to, is to provide unconditional love and at the same time the kind of structure that children need. Here's the big idea. I want to put this on the screen. Here's the big idea. Yes, I love you. And no, you can't have your own way. Yes, I love you, and no, you can't have your own way. Now, in descending order, if that's the ideal in concept, what is not the ideal? Well, here's, here's the, the next level of parenting. This is my, we might call this permissive parenting. This is, yes, I love you, and you can do whatever you want. There are a lot of parents like that, it seems, in the world today. Not, not as good, not so good. Now, again, in descending order, the next would be, no, I don't love you, and you can do whatever you want. This is a careless parent. I could care less. I don't love you, and you can do whatever you want. The worst kind of parenting goes, no, I don't love you, and you can't have your own way. This is the parent who not only lacks love, but now throws the book at people and lives in a legalistic culture, and no, you can't do anything you want, and this is the hot, most highly destructive form of parenting. No love and lots of rules. It's, it's ugly, and it's destructive. So the ideal is, yes, I love you, and no, you can't have your own way. So what is the antidote to folly? What is the antidote to folly that leads to ruination? The antidote to folly as a parent is unconditional love and structure. Do you hear those? Unconditional love and structure. Yes, I love you. No, you can't do whatever you want. <laughs> That's the ideal. So kids need rules. They need boundaries. They need limitations. They, they need parameter. They need it. This drives the folly out of them if they have that kind of discipline. Uh, Dr. James Dobson reported an example in a local grade school years ago where this particular grade school had a yard that was fenced in. And so there were four rows of fences in an approximate square. And this is where the children in the grade school would recess. And the administrators of the school thought that this was too confining, too restrictive. And so they managed to remove the four sides of the fence. So there's no fence now. And the kids are free to roam. And they removed the four fences, and they were surprised to realize that before, the children would play within the confines of the fenced area with absolute freedom and confidence all the way to the edge of the fences. I mean, just a free-for-all right, right to the fence. 
And after they remove the fence, they observe the children less energetic and with a tendency to huddle together in little groups in the middle of the grounds. That's fascinating. Here's what they learned. They were restricted, these children, restricted by the absence of boundaries. Could you please let that soak in? Children are actually restricted when there's an absence of boundaries. So giving your children structure is a powerful way of saying, I love you, and actually releasing them to their full potential. Are you with me? This is what children need. They need unconditional love, and they need structure. Now, I would add this caveat because what I've just described is what social science and, 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 the, and the other disciplines that try to understand the construction of families and how to raise children uh, reveal in their work. But I would add the spiritual component. I, I believe the three essentials that all children need are unconditional love, forthright guidance, discipline, dis, dis, uh, instruction, and they need exposure to Jesus. They need exposure to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Unconditional love, forthright guidance, exposure to the power of God. That's why I find it fascinating uh, during Serve Week. You know, we've done Serve Week now for 20 years, and it's such a powerful event in the lives of everybody who participates. It's exhausting. It's, it's, I'm, we're killing ourselves here. <laughs> I mean, it's really... It's really challenging to put it all together. It's, I mean, it's a big deal. And lots of people work really hard to make it happen. And any of the students, we, we've had now children who have done serve, who became teenagers who did serve, and now are, are leaders with serve. I, I mean, we have this generational effect now after 20 years of people engaged in serve because it adds such value to the people who participate. And, of course, there's all kinds of people in the community. Uh, agencies will get their food moved around. Uh, widows will get their houses painted. I mean, there are all kinds, just dozens and dozens of venues where acts of service will be taking place, and kids will learn how to serve. And that's a wonderful thing. But let me tell you the other component to serve. In the evenings, there's worship, and there's singing, and there's authentic engagement with the person and work of the Holy Spirit. There will be people presenting the truth of the gospel to these kids. And it will be a life-changing experience for all of them. And so what's been amazing to me over the years, now 20 years of this, are the parents who, who get confused about the values thereof. I mean, in one week, the three most important ingredients in a child's life, unconditional love, forthright guidance, and exposure to the person and work of the Holy Spirit are made available to these students. And the number of parents over the years that I've observed dismissing that opportunity so seemingly easily and casually. Now, I don't know everyone's schedule, and I don't know all the pressure points, and I don't know how compressed your world is. I, you know, I don't know. I raised a couple of kids, so I've got some clue. Uh, but why you, would, why you would decide, you know, my kid's got to go to hockey camp that week. I say hockey camp because that's not relevant to anybody listening to me, and that way I won't get in trouble with anyone. But you know what I mean. They just pick something else. 
rather than that, unconditional love and forthright guidance and exposure to Jesus. <laughs> and so I just wonder about that. So I just want to nudge you because these are the things that children need. Now here's, here's, the, uh, here's the third thing. And these are just a list of high-impact ideas. This is as practical as I know how to be if you want to be a father who makes a difference. The first is this. Keep your marriage strong. Keep your marriage strong. Now, you've heard this statement. The single most important thing you, you can do for your, uh, for your children is to love their mother. Dads, the most important thing you can do for your children is love their mother. Now, that's, when you hear that, you go, yeah, that's, yeah that makes sense. That's, that's common sense, and we should do it. Listen to me. If we didn't have the Bible, and we didn't have biblical models, and we didn't have folks who practice a Christian lifestyle and parenting, if we didn't have any of that, social science would confirm what I'm describing. This is family systems theory 101. I mean, this, is, this has been studied, researched, proven, all of it is effective. This is how you follow the science in, in families. Family systems theory, first page, first paragraph, first sentence, is if you get the marriage right, the nucleus right, then the family will tend to be healthy. And we know this is true. And it's not just true in science, it's true everywhere else. And especially within the confines of our faith. So keep your marriage strong. I uh, have a family member whose very close friend is from a set of parents who divorced. And so now as, a, as an adolescent, this girl spends four days a week with her father and three days a week with her mother. And then the next week, it's four days with her mother and three days with her father, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This uh, adolescent girl lives in two homes, three and four days a week, and vice versa, and vice versa, and vice versa. I have a question for you. Who does that to their children? Who does that? Now, I've already said that I don't know everybody's story, and I don't know the circumstances, and I don't know how hard it is, and I don't know what the rationalization was, I'm, I'm aware that life is complex and sometimes you just do the best you can given the set of circumstances you have. I got it. Who does that to their children? Well, the only reason they stayed there, kept their marriage together, they stayed together all those years, well, they told me this, the only reason they stayed together was for the sake of their kids. They stayed married until their kids were grown, left the house. And then they separated. I say, good for them. Good on them. What do you mean? A set of parents actually doing something sacrificial, personally costly, for the sake of their kids? I mean, doing something that's really hard so their kids could benefit from it? Amazing concept. Amazing consideration 
You mean a person would live for 15 minutes unhappy for the sake of their children? Stunning. Am I, am I coming on too strong? I, I feel so passionately about this. Keep your marriage strong. Listen, someone within the sound of my voice right now, you're contemplating a divorce. You have small children in your house, and you're contemplating a, ch- a change of venue in your marriage. And let me, let me just, if, if I have any authority in your life at all, you stop it. You stop it right now, and you get help. We have, lots of, we have a mountain of resources in our church to help people struggling in their marriage. You reach out and get help. You made these babies. Now you give your life away for them. They're your priority. You are not your priority any longer. Your children are your priority. You live for them. You sacrifice for them. You do whatever it takes for their sake. That's how you live honorably. That's how you do the right thing. That's how you invoke the blessing and presence of God. That's how it works best. We have a generation of children right now who are in big trouble because they haven't had these things modeled for them. And it's not their fault. It's my fault and your fault for allowing it to happen under our watch. So keep your marriage strong. B, train and instruct. That's what our text says. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, his wonders, what he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob, established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they, in turn, would tell their children. So this is a generational process, one generation to the next. Your primary responsibility as parents is to instruct and disciple your children to know Jesus, unconditional love, forthright guidance, and exposure to Jesus. That's the mission as a parent. That's the goal. That's the idea. We have, I've noticed this over the years. A lot of folks, devout, devout Christians who have a, a strong sense of call to, to reach people for Jesus' sake, I mean, they have a kingdom perspective, and it's, it's really inspiring that way. But I have been caught up in this, just like folks I've observed, that people who are so passionate about fulfilling the Great Commission forget that the, play, that, that the Great Commission of making disciples of all the nations begins under your own roof. My wife, who's not in the service today, we're new, new here, you know, we've been pastors here for three weeks, and my wife now uh, routinely works in the in children's area every Sunday at 10 and 11.30, so she comes at 8.30, but she works in the children's department, and she will, it looks like, until Jesus comes because we can't get enough people to sign up to help over there. <laughs> as long as I'm on a roll today, I might as well just go all the way. <laughs> Why hold back now? I'm already in trouble. Here's, here's what she has said to me more than once. She would pull me aside, hold my face, look me right in the eye, and she would say, you know, Greg, you can win the whole world to Jesus. 
But if you lose your family, you are a failure. How many of you know that's a good woman? She helped helped keep the old dog on the porch. (laughs) Keep me focused. You can be doing amazing things for Jesus' sake. But if you lose your own house. So what do you do? You pray before meals. You read the Bible to your children. You rehearse the great miracles of the Bible. You lead them in devotions. You do this before school. You do it before bed. You you talk to them about the the things of the faith. When your children get old enough, now this this is an important caveat. When your children get old enough, you encourage them to take the lead. Okay, next, next Wednesday, you're leading the devotional before school. So you find a place in the Bible that you like, and you read that to the rest of the family before school, and we'll go through this. And you say, no, I can't get my kids to do that. So you bribe them. Find out what their currency is. Maybe it's cookies. Maybe it's screen time. Maybe it's a sleepover with your friend. Or maybe it's going out on that date you want to go out on. Maybe it's just money. Our youngest son, Isaac, we could bribe him to do virtually anything with three chocolate chip cookies. That's all it took. We'll give you three chocolate chip cookies if you do this. Okay. And he would, we could get him to do literally anything. And it's good. You say, okay, now you have to lead devotions on Wednesday. Okay. Three chocolate chip? Yeah, three. Perfect. Aaron, our oldest son, you couldn't bribe him with a cookie. You couldn't, you couldn't bribe him with, you know, some kind of special privilege or anything like this. You had to pay him. I'll give you five bucks to lead devotions next Wednesday. He said, I got it. <laughs> and he would do it. That's his currency. That's what motivates him. And so next thing you know, he's reading the Bible to us and telling us why it's important. Here's your five bucks. Good job. This is what you do. It's... it's it's how you instruct. It's how you train. It's, it's how you disciple your children. So train them and instruct them. Here's, here's number C. Give them time. Heard the story of a man who loved his family, loved his family so much that he started a new business and in order to make the life of his family better. And his business began to grow. And it demanded more of his time. And so after a couple of years, he discovered that he was getting up before light and coming home after dark. And a few months of that kind of schedule, his, his wife was tucking their three-and-a-half-year-old son into bed one night. And the mother was tucking him in, and the little guy, three-and-a-half, he looks up at his mother, and he simply asked with all sincerity, where does daddy live? Because he never saw him. And the guy realizes that they'd gotten the ends And the means completely reversed. Got it completely upside down. Now, I've confessed this moment in my life in the past. When our oldest son, Aaron, was about eight or nine years old, we were in the middle of building this campus. And the main building across the parking lot over there was under construction. And I was pastoring the church, leading the church, and, you know, supervising the construction at the same time. And I was never home before nine o'clock at night for months at a time. 
And one night I got home, it was after nine, it was already dark, and I walked into the living room and Aaron wasn't in bed yet. And he walked over to me in the middle of the living room. I can still describe the scene for you. And he's about this tall. And he just laid his head on my side and wrapped his arms around me and just squeezed me. And then he, without letting go of me, he looked up at me and with all sincerity, he looked me right in the eyes and he said, Dad, are you ever going to be home in the evening so that we can play? You know, I've been challenging all of us to set boundaries for our kids. Kids needs boundaries. Well, listen, as a parent, sometimes we're good at setting boundaries for, for our children, but not good at setting boundaries for ourselves. And that night was a crossroads for me. And I'm ch I changed my ways. And my wife could testify to this that I made all kinds of adjustments in my life that day. And there are two things that I decided that I would do from then on, which I did. One was that I would have a date with my wife one time, one day, every week. One hour, at least, every week, on the calendar, scheduled right there with my wife, just the two of us, nobody else. And the second thing I did is I determined that I would never, ever again, for any reason, miss a significant event in the life of one of my kids. And our kids were busy and they were active. All kinds of school activities, church activities, sports activities, all kinds of stuff going on in their life. And I never missed a significant event. Not once. There were many times that I would get a call. Someone say, you know, we've got a big conference that we're doing. And, um, and we want you to come and keynote and, and coach a bunch of pastors in this category of ministry. And it's on this date. And I look at the calendar and I, and I go, our son, youngest son, Isaac, he's a freshman in high school. He's got a, he's got a freshman tennis match that night. <laughs> Sorry, can't come to the conference. We had Saturday night service here for 21 years, and our boys both played high school basketball, and there was all kinds of conflicts on Saturday night. So there were nights when I was not here, and there were other nights when there was a home game at Delta High School, which is just 10 minutes away, and we would reverse the order of service on Saturday night because... <laughs> because I could preach and then get to the game in time to, for the start of the game. And so I would, the first thing we would do is preach and then we'd do some singing and, and offering and all that stuff later. And I would explain to folks why we were doing it this way. And I explained to them why. And I would remind people that the reason that we're doing the service flip side this week is because my son is more important to me than you are. And I wanted to make that clear. I wanted them to understand the value I wanted to model for him what it looks like. And that's exactly what I did for years. Listen, here's, here's my theory, that we should all prioritize our relationships based on who's going to be crying at, at your funeral. I'm 
My wife will be crying at my funeral. Our sons will be crying at my, my funeral. You won't. But they will. You may be partying. So you don't have to listen to this sort of thing anymore. But they'll be crying. All of us should prioritize our relationships based on who's going to be really upset at the funeral. Now you think about that. And get that right. So give them time. Someone say, well, how do you do spend quality time with your kids? Well, this is the, the, best way, the best way to give your kids time is to give it to them the way they want to receive it. Find out from them. Maybe it's board games, maybe it's video games, maybe they like to eat ice cream, maybe it's sports, maybe it's reading books. They'll let you know. Do what they want. The way they want to receive the time, give it to them that way. And that will matter. So give them time. Uh, D, pray for them. And just think about this. Parents are the most likely candidates to actually pray for your children. <laughs> Other people praying for your children are, are praying, oh God. You know, maybe they're the Sunday school teacher or the third grade teacher or something. Their prayers for your children are different than your prayers would be. So you, you're, the best, you're the best ones <laughs> available to pray good prayers <laughs> for your kids. So pray. Pray for them. Oh, my gosh, how much we prayed for our boys. And, and, so, and still do. So here's E. Encourage them with words. Listen, encouragement is the food of the heart. And we all need it. We all need it. I say this every time I have the opportunity. And here's another opportunity. Listen to me carefully. Dads. I'm not talking about moms now. I'm talking about dads. Dads, your words to your children or lack thereof will inform the quality of their self-identity and the way they relate to God. Your words will define for them their self-concept. Your words. You say, what, what is that, magic? It's magic. Well, it can't be that simple. It's not only simple, it is powerful. The most powerful way to imprint your children is by the words of the Father. There is no close second. There's a lot of things you can do to imprint and model on your kids. The single most powerful tool that a father has in the life of his children are the words he uses to them. I can't overstate it. This is not hyperbole. This is a powerful tool. So the father that says, you're no good. You're stupid. You're ugly. You're never going to amount to anything. Many people within the sound of my voice right now have heard those words from their own father. And it's taken you a lifetime to try to overcome them. Because they have so much power. Children tend to believe what their father says to them. It sticks, it sticks on us. So let me put on the screen 
These are the words, Dad. These are the actual words you should use in the life of your children. Well, my children are raised. Fine. If they're still alive and you're still alive, pick up the phone. Drive to their house. Today. Don't wait another moment to say these words. Here are the words you say to your son. Son, I love you. I am proud of you. You have the right stuff. I love you. I'm proud of you. You have the right stuff. You don't say it once. You say it often. I love you. I'm proud of you. You have the right stuff. (laughs) I had to learn this. My dad's dad never said it to my dad, and my dad, not until the very end of his life, could summon the courage to say those words even to me. I've been saying them to my boys from the time, well, they were in gestation. We talked to our boys before they were born. Using these words, it's so powerful. These are the words you use for your daughters. I love you. I am proud of you. You are precious to me. You are wonderful. You are beautiful. You are so valuable. You are so special. You're precious to me. (laughs) You have, listen, I cannot underestimate, overestimate how powerful those words are in the life of your daughter. These are the words, if you say them, dads, if you, moms can say them, it doesn't have the same effect. Moms can say them and mean them. Not the same effect. When dads say these words, it defines the self-concept, sense of value and worth, and the concept of God in your children's lives. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's a remarkable thing. It's miraculous. It's a miracle how effective it is. And so you say the words. Because if you don't say these words to your daughter, she's desperate to hear them from you. She's desperate for your love and acceptance. She needs to know she's special. She needs to know it from you, Dad. And if she doesn't get it from you, listen to me. She'll give her love away to the first 16-year-old mistake with a zipper that says the words to her. Happens every day, everywhere. Our oldest son Aaron is 44 years old. I just saw him yesterday when we parted company. He walked over to me. I looked him in the eye. He looked me in the eye, and I said, I love you, son. He said, I love you, Dad, and we hugged each other. We say it, to, we say it all the time. When I look at my sons right now and I say, I'm proud of you, boys, I'm proud of you. It makes them cry. And they're full grown, have their own families, raising their own kids. I got a Father's Day card uh, in the mail from our oldest son. It was already here when we got back yesterday. And I opened it up and it said, uh, Happy Father's Day. You've, you've been so good to me. You've met my needs. You were, you were always there for me. You've been so faithful, so glad. 
and I just wanted you to know, and you open up the card and it says, I was worth it. <laughs> See what I have to put up with? Why would a guy give his father a card like that? Let me tell you why. He knows who he is. He knows who he is. Why would a kid give his father a card like that on Father's Day? Because he is self-aware. He knows he has value. Now, of course, it was tongue-in-cheek. It was, you know, it was just hilarious. But it comes out of a really healthy place. So let me just end this way. Men, in the name of Jesus, I adjure you, tell your children as often as you can, and it's never too late. Well, my children are 50 years old. Call them. Drive to their house and do it now. Work up the courage you need. The reason you haven't done it is because you don't feel it. You're afraid of it. You're not sure of it. You didn't receive it from your dad, and so you're not sure how to give it to your kids. Listen, your dad didn't give it to you because he didn't have it to give. Cut him some slack. Just let him go. You're a different person now. You stand in the shadow of God Almighty who has called you out of, his, out of darkness into his marvelous light. So now you have the boldness of Christ and the confidence of knowing that his word is true. So you can do it. You can do it. It won't be easy. It will be hard. And you may even be ashamed that you haven't said it already. But it's never too late to say the words. So I adjure you. In the name of Jesus Christ, before the end of the day, say this to your children. Say these words. Say them, and, and even if you don't feel them, say them. Even if you don't mean it today, say the words. Because you say the words enough, you'll start to believe them. You'll start to feel them. And your children will immediately receive it. That's the way it works. It's amazing. It's powerful. It's miraculous. Say the words. Well, here's the goal. Proverbs 23, 24. Look at it on the screen. The father of a righteous child has great joy. And a man who fathers a wise son, a wise daughter, rejoices in them. That's the goal. Now listen, let me end where we began today. Some of you didn't receive from your parents what you needed, but you can give your kids what they need. You can do it. Some of you have been parents and you feel like you failed because you didn't qualify in much of the points of this sermon. And maybe your, maybe your children are gone. There's no longer a chance to say it to them. Listen to me. There's still good news because God will meet you right where you are in the midst of your pain, your disappointment, your shame, your grief. And he will reassure you because of his everlasting, unconditional love for you. You know, he's a good parent. He loves you unconditionally. He's offering you forthright guidance today through this humble servant. And so you're being discipled today in the way. And you have exposure now to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. You're exposed to Jesus today, and he does all things well, and he's a redeemer God, and he can take the worst things that can happen to us 
the deepest failures and still bring out of them good. You don't know how God wants to use you. You may be with a friend someday and say, you know, I failed as a parent in this way and that way, but you don't have to fail. And here's what I know I would do differently if I had the chance. And suddenly God begins to redeem generationally through your life, even in the brokenness of your life, something wonderful and redemptive. God does all things well. God is good all the time, and he's with you. Do you can you receive it? Receive it today. Be encouraged. There's hopeful good news in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for this light that illumines our path. Thank you for the hopefulness of your presence in our lives. And so, Lord, as we receive unconditional love and forthright guidance and exposure to your work in our lives, we offer that to our children. And we encourage one another in it, knowing that from generation to generation we can be blessed and favored and helped by your amazing love and grace. So that we reach for with great joy in Jesus' name. And all the people said, amen. Would you stand with us?